Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor whose, whose territory they were under, heard the case, listened to what was going on, and he wanted to dismiss it. Because he knew that Jesus had done nothing deserving of death. But the Jewish leaders used manipulation and pressure on Pontius Pilate. They said, Jesus is committing treason, and Caesar, the Roman emperor, is our only king. And so they demanded his crucifixion. If Pilate refused to do that, they said, you're not a friend of Caesar. And Pilate could not afford to be called not a friend of Caesar. Caesar's his boss. Pilate finally caved in under pressure. He absconded his responsibility to uphold justice. He covered his own back and pronounced a death sentence on Jesus. And so the king would die. We pick up the story on page 5, verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And here they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Crucifixion was a terrible way to die. Any other way to die, choose that. Not crucifixion. If you saw the Passion of the Christ, uh, you'll know what I mean. It was so cruel that Roman law did not allow it to be used on Roman citizens. But it was good enough for the conquered people. And so Jesus, like thousands before him, was crucified. After being flogged and stripped, he was pinned to a wooden cross by nails piercing his wrists and his feet and left there to die a slow and painful death. Actually, his crucifixion is not only mentioned in the Bible, but in other historical literature around the time as well. Other Roman historian Tacitus, he's no Christian, in fact he called Christianity a deadly superstition, records in the Annals of Imperial Rome, Christus, from whom the name Christians had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, in Judea. There's a Roman uh, historian. There's also a Jewish historian called Josephus. And he wrote about this. He said, Pilate, on hearing him accused by men of higher standing among us, condemned him to be crucified. Well, once Pilate had agreed to crucify Jesus, the Jewish leaders didn't have any more ammunition they can use against him. They played their Caesar card, and now Pilate, in turn, will try and humiliate them. We pick up from verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. You see, he's being sarcastic to the Jews, trying to poke fun at them for having such a weak king. Hey, you guys, king of the Jews, eh? And he made it such that as many people could understand this as possible, all those three big languages. And the Jews knew this. He's too short them. And so verse 21. 
The chief priests and the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. They want to change because in humiliating Jesus, Pilate's humiliating them, but this time Pilate stands firm. He doesn't have to listen to them now. And he says, What I have written, I have written. For behind all this, behind all the evil scheming of the Jewish leaders, behind all the culpable weakness and then sarcasm of Pilate, God was at work. So that when Jesus hung up on that cross, the sign above his head announced the great truths of why he was there. In three languages, for all to see. Jesus is the King of the Jews. He is the one God had been promising through the Old Testament times, so many times, over and over again. He is the one that Israel had been waiting for for so long. The King who would come and rule God's people. Who would save His people. Who would bring justice to the nations. Who would bring in the kingdom that will last forever. But, this King reigns not from a royal throne, but from a cross. He's a crucified king, a weak king, a king that is about to die. How can he be the promised king of the kingdom? How could he rule if, if he were dead? Well, we read about something else that was happening while Jesus was dying there. Verse 23 and 24. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining, and this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who gets it. Here they are, gambling for his clothes, and you know what? At the same time as these soldiers are sharing his clothes and gambling for his seamless robe that would be a pity to tear, at the same time as they were doing these evil things, God was fulfilling prophecy. And verse 24 continues. This happened that scripture might be fulfilled which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So that is what the soldiers did. The part of scripture that's being fulfilled there was Psalm 22, which we read earlier. It's a psalm of David. David was an ancestor of Jesus who lived a thousand years before him. He was the great Old Testament king, the one whose life pointed forward to the ultimate king whom God had promised would come. And yet the psalm, you remember when we read it just now, is the psalm of an abandoned one. It's a psalm that opens with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm that goes on in the voice of one who suffers, who is scorned and despised, who is mocked and insulted, whose strength is dried up and whose tongue sticks the roof of his mouth in, in God-forsaken thirst, whose hands and feet are pierced by evil men, 
who suffers the shame of people gloating over his naked body as others throw lots for his clothes. We asked just now, how could the suffering Jesus be the promised king of the kingdom? Well, this is a psalm of David the king. And he was pointing forward to the ultimate king. And it does point forward to someone who suffers. And so contrary to popular thinking, in God's book, suffering and death and kingship do go together. Well, there's more to Psalm 22, a twist, if you like, in the poem, something that changes the whole tone of it, but we'll come to that later. Now we see Jesus strung up on the cross between two criminals. And we know that it's meant to be according to prophecy. But we still wonder what God's promised king is doing there. And in the midst of all this, in the midst of his pain, Jesus sees his mother. And he knows the pain that she is going through, seeing him there. He knows that he is going to go to the Father. And that Mary could not presume on special treatment now in their relationship. She would find her joy in being his follower, his disciple. And so in love and concern he finds a son for her in her place. Verse 25. Uh, the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. That's a great example, isn't it? For all of us with living parents. Don't neglect your parents, will you? There is Jesus performing the greatest act in human history and he makes sure that someone looks after his mum. He still obeys his heavenly father above all. He, he doesn't avoid the cross because it will break his mother's heart. But he asked his closest disciple, probably John himself, to take his mother instead. And he gives John to her as a son. So there is the crucified king, reigning from the cross, suffering the indignity and pain of crucifixion, and still showing other person-centered love. Well, time passes by as he hangs there on the cross, suffering the physical torture, where his every breath comes at the cost of the agony of lifting himself up against the nails. But far worse, suffering the spiritual agony of the work that he's doing there. But after what must have seemed like an eternity to Jesus, his task was complete. And at last, he was ready to die. Verse 28. Later, 
knowing that all was now completed, and so the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Also a reference back to Psalm 22. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. It is finished. Notice, he, he's not saying, I am finished. It's not a cry of defeat. It's, it's, a, it's a cry of victory. The king has won. It is finished. His task is complete. John doesn't tell us here what the task is, but whatever it is, Jesus has achieved what he came to do. He has accomplished his work. It is finished. And with that, end of verse 30, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. No one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. He obeyed his father and did his work. He died, he bowed his head, he gave up his spirit, and it was all according to plan. But what was the work that he had finished? What was going on spiritually there as he hung on the cross? And what does that death of Jesus 2,000 years ago have to do with us now? Well, John gives us a hint of the answer when we read what happened just after Jesus died. Have a look with me. We'll remind, each, I'll remind you of verse 31 to 37. It was a day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews didn't want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, John draws our attention here to two things, isn't it? First of all, in spite of, in spite of the intentions of the authorities, Jesus' legs were not broken. And secondly, when the side of Jesus was pierced, blood and water flowed out from it. And it says, verse 36, these things happened so the scriptures would be fulfilled, in two, two scriptures here, not one of his bones would be broken. That's the first one. And as another scripture says, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. So what's the significance of this? The bones on the one hand, and the piercing with the blood and water coming out on the other. Well, let's look at the bones. The bones, not one of them was broken. Now, just by itself, that wouldn't mean very much, right? I mean, lots of people die without broken bones. So why does John single out this fact? Well, why does the fact that Jesus is the only one of those three who were crucified die without getting his bones broken, why is it important? Remember, Jesus died at the time of the Passover. The Passover was a yearly Jewish festival which God actually started 1,500 years before. Uh, 1,500 years before this, God had redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt and part of saving them, he brought judgment on the Egyptians. 
He arranged for every firstborn male in Egypt to die. But he told his people, the Israelites, to slaughter a lamb instead. And before they roasted and ate the lamb, they were to take some of the blood and they were to put it on the doorposts, on the sides and the tops of the door frames. And when the Lord came to bring his judgment upon Egypt, he would see the blood on the doorpost and pass over that house. And that's what happened. God's judgment fell on the Egyptians. Death was everywhere among God's enemies, but in the midst of that judgment, he rescued his people, and the only death in their house was that of a lamb. A lamb died instead of a person when God came in judgment to rescue his people. But unless they believed God and did what was said, unless they trusted him enough to sacrifice a lamb and and shelter under its blood, they would have the same fate as the Egyptians. Now, God told his people Israel to remember this event by celebrating the Passover every year. And as they did that, they will remember that God has saved his people from slavery in Egypt through a great act of judgment. And they will remember that when judgment fell on God's enemies, God's people were saved through the substitutionary death of a lamb. And so he gave them detailed instructions. Told them this time each year, the time of the Passover, each family, slaughter, eat a lamb. If you can't afford then two neighboring families can share. But either way, there was something special about the way they were to kill it and eat it. Something that would be very puzzling because until Jesus died, there seemed to be no significance to it. They were to slaughter it and cook it and eat it in such a way that none of its bones were broken. You see the significance of John's statement now? He is telling us that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Right back near the beginning of the gospel, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. And he said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now at the end of the story, the lamb is slaughtered. And indeed takes away the sin of the world. See friends, the Passover, that was remembrance of God's great rescue from Egypt. But that rescue itself was just a pointer, a shadow of an even bigger rescue to come. Because the day will come when God brings his judgment, not just on Egypt, but but on the whole world. Every human being will be called to account to experience his wrath. And friends, it's not to say that we don't deserve that judgment. We do. All of us have sinned. We've rebelled against our creator God. And deserve his punishment on the day he comes to judge the world. But... But Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, was sacrificed once and for all that Good Friday to save people like you and me from the judgment of God. By dying for us on the cross, Jesus took our place under God's judgment. He took our sins, our guilt, our punishment. He took our hell. He died there for us as our representative. He died there instead of us as our substitute. And because Jesus died for us, 
God's people, those who trust him, will be saved on the judgment day and partake in eternal glory. His unbroken bones point to the fact that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second thing that John really wants us to know is that Jesus' side was pierced. The fact that blood and water came out does incidentally indicate beyond a shadow of doubt that he was really dead, but that's not John's point as he writes this. Instead, he explains this phenomena again by taking us back to the Old Testament scriptures. In Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10, God speaks to his people and he seems to be talking about himself and his king at the same time. It says, or God says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. And then a couple of verses later it says this. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. John tells us here that this prophecy was being fulfilled on that first Good Friday. Jesus, who was simultaneously God and God's King, was pierced. And a fountain opened up to cleanse us from sin and impurity. John saw blood and water flow from Jesus' side. This is no accident. Not just an unusual medical phenomena. It's it's a pointer, it's a sign that tells us the significance of what's happening. You see, blood and water in the Jewish temple were used in atonement and purification. Blood was shed in the sacrifices. Water was used to wash and to purify. But now that Jesus has died, we don't go to a temple anymore to, to be purified and, and made right with God. In fact, John showed us earlier in the Gospel that that Jesus is a true temple. The place where we meet God. And from Him, from His side, came blood and water. Those symbols of, of, of sacrificial death and cleansing. Because from Him, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, comes the true cleansing. Zechariah's fountain is Jesus Himself. He is the cleansing fountain. The one who can wash us clean from our sin and impurity. And friends, that fountain is still flowing today. Or to drop the metaphorical language, the cleansing and forgiveness that Jesus died to bring is available for us. Jesus can take away our sins, every last one of them, because he died for them. Jesus can remove every wrong that we've ever done and make us pure and holy and clean before the living God. Remember how earlier we wondered what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished? 
What work that he had accomplished? Friends, the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, surely that is his finished work. He has taken our sins once and for all. He has dealt with them thoroughly. In the death of Jesus, our sin was completely dealt with. God's judgment on our sin was completely exhausted. The Passover lamb was sacrificed. The fountain of cleansing and forgiveness was open to us. The death of Jesus means that we can be completely forgiven, no matter what we've done. And we can be friends with God once more. And through all this, God the Father is glorified. For he is shown to be the wise, just, and loving God whom he is. But that is not the end of the story. Because remember how we were wondering before how the king would reign since he was killed on a cross? And remember how I said there was a twist to Psalm 22 which was being fulfilled that first Good Friday? Well, maybe you noticed it. Halfway through the psalm, the, the psalm changes. The psalm started out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends with joyful worship and praise. Because the psalm predicts that the abandoned one would be heard. The one whose hands and feet were pierced would be rescued. The forsaken one would be restored. And all the ends of the earth would remember this and turn to God. God would rule over the nations. Generation upon generation would be told about the Lord and what He has done. His righteousness would be declared to a people yet unborn. And that is what's happening today. All over the world. People are hearing and remembering and praising God for what He has done in Christ. For the king died, the king was buried, and the king came to life again. Arose victorious over sin and death. He had to. That's what the scriptures foretold. And that was what John was anticipating when he showed us the fulfillment of Psalm 22 in the actions of those soldiers and the other events surrounding Jesus' death. And so the one that we saw on the cross, the one hanging and bleeding and naked, the one suffering for your sins and mine, he really is the living king. And he is not just the king of the Jews, but the king of all the nations. He is our king who has every right to tell us how we should live. And so we've seen tonight, my friends, that Jesus is God's crucified King. We've seen that Jesus is the Passover Lamb. And we've seen that Jesus is the cleansing fountain. But friends, just knowing these facts, is, that's not enough. Remember, the Israelites were only saved from God's judgment if they took the blood of the Passover lamb and applied it to their doorposts. A fountain can only cleanse if you wash it. And if the king is not your friend but your enemy, 
you're still in rebellion against him. And it's like that for us as well. We need God's Spirit to apply Jesus' death to our lives. We need to rely on the death of Jesus as our substitute. We need to shelter personally under his blood. We need to be personally cleansed and washed clean by his sacrificial death. And we need to personally submit to him as our crucified but risen king. So let me end by asking you where you stand in all this. Do you trust the finished work of Jesus on the cross as the sacrifice that keeps you from God's wrath, will save you on that last day? Do you rely on Jesus and Jesus alone to clean you, to wash you from your sins? Do you trust in Him to be your King, the one who rules your life? I know that many of you here will say a joyful yes. Jesus is my crucified, risen King. I live my life under His rule. Jesus is my Passover lamb. I shelter under His blood and rely totally on Him to save me from God's judgment on the last day. Jesus is the temple. He's the place I meet God. He's the cleansing fountain where my sins were washed away. But there will be some in a crowd this size for whom this is not yet true. And if that is you, then listen to this. Coming into Jesus' kingdom, sheltering under Jesus' blood, having your sins washed away, these are gifts from God. And they are gifts that we receive by faith. That is, by trusting in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Rely on his death and nothing else to save you from God's wrath and wash away your sin. Believe that he is the risen king. Bow to him as your king. And trust your life and your eternity entirely into his hands. And you will be saved and cleansed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given your Son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross to save us. We are unworthy sinners. We are people who have rebelled against you and don't deserve your love. And that you, but you have loved us so much that you did that cross for us. Thank you that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Help us, we pray, by your Spirit. May your Spirit work in our hearts that we are people who shelter under his blood.
so that when the day of judgment comes, we will escape. Thank you that Jesus is the cleansing fountain. As the temple, the place where we meet you, he is the place also where our sins are washed away, the sacrifice made. Heavenly Father, we pray that you help us to see more and more clearly and appreciate more and more what Jesus has done for us. And Father, I pray that if there are people here who have come tonight who came in not knowing about Jesus and his death, or who came in knowing about Jesus but not yet sheltering under his blood, not yet trusting him, not yet looking to him as their Passover lamb and their only means of cleansing from sin. By your Spirit, please work in their hearts and lives. May they look to Jesus and trust entirely in him. We ask this for his sake and your glory. Amen. So why is Good Friday so good? All of us have rebelled against our Creator. All of us deserve judgment. And yet, and yet, this is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We now stand forgiven at the cross. Let's stand and sing the power of the cross.